This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hambridge. Today on episode three of season two. To have the idea that we're going to get rid of weeds is, is a bit optimistic. And really what we should think about doing is pushing weed communities in directions where we want them to be so they have the minimum impact on our crops. Dr. Tim Seipel joins the show to talk about integrated weed management. Tim is a cropland weed extension specialist at Montana State University. And in this episode, he'll talk about the threat of weed resistance, how to think about weed management strategies, and some of the tactics that are working on some of the most threatening weeds to pulse crops. He kicks off our discussion, though, with a high-level definition of integrated weed management. So integrated weed management is an approach to managing weeds where you combine multiple control tactics. And each one of those control tactics, you know, it's not a silver bullet of success where all the weeds are gone. But when you end up putting together these tactics, you get better weed management outcomes. And so in general, integrated weed management is vital for modern weed management programs that you're going to run. There's simply too much herbicide resistance out there over a large number of crops that we have to think beyond just using herbicides in the field. And so integrated weed management really combines mechanical tactics, whether that be, you know, a mowing or a harrowing or tillage in some instances. And cultural tactics, that would be something like, you know, using optimal seeding rates, coming up with a rotation where you can have different windows for weed control periods. For example, if you have too many winter annuals in a field, you know, maybe you need to think it's just winter wheat is just a winter cereal that doesn't give me the window that I need to control those winter annuals. Maybe I'm going to switch to a spring planted crop where I have better window and time to control those winter annuals and I can sort of reduce that problem. And then it's chemical is combined in there. And that's, you know, thinking of our herbicides and then biological control agents don't play such a huge role in our row crops, but there, there is some room out there for it. And, you know, things like sheep and grazing can also you know, timed right and timed correctly can reduce that weed seed number that we think about. As an example, we just finished up some research, our last field season at the Central Ag Research Station in Moccasin, Montana, that's run by Pat Carr, where we looked at ways of managing kochia and wild oat in diverse rotations. So we had some forage crops in there, we had lentils in there, we had spring wheat in there. And so we looked at those and we tried to figure out what's the best way to drive the weed seed bank of kochia and wild oat down so we really think about the population dynamics. And we see, hey, if you have a forage crop out there and you cut it down in July, the amount of wild oat seed produced is much less than having just lentil or just a spring wheat in your cropping rotation in there. So really thinking about all the tactics we can bring together and really getting strategic about it and, and thinking about what strategies can we do to sort of direct the weeds and direct that weed seed bank. 
This is a great high-level overview of what we're going to dive deeper into in today's episode. But what about for those listening who are maybe thinking, my current weed management approach isn't perfect, but it seems to be working fine. Why would they want to further complicate things by adding new strategies? Resistance happens really fast. And resistance to herbicide happens when your selection pressure is most reliable. So if you give a weed a really reliable pressure on it, it's going to evolve away from it really quickly. And so I heard the joke someone said to me jokingly the other day, well, if you have a good herbicide that works well on the weed, you should switch it. And it was a, a joke in that, you know, we can't just keep going back with the same herbicide, same herbicide, same herbicide, because it just selects for resistance. That's how we breed our crops too, right? We, we go out and we, we put a reliable selection pressure. If we want acylkyta resistance, we give these lentils and chickpeas acylkyta and we keep selecting for the ones that perform best. The same thing happens in our crop fields. If we come back with the same herbicide, same herbicide, same weed management tactic for that matter, where it's tillage, tillage, tillage then we are really predictable to the weeds and it's easier for the weeds to get around us. Sometimes I use the quote from the Tao Te Ching, this ancient Chinese philosophy, and it's about water. And it says, water is soft and fluid and it always yields, but water always gets where it's going. And so in the same way, we have to think about how we manage weeds. If we try to be really rigid and we're rock, water wears that rock away eventually, even though it yields every time, it eventually gets around us and gets through our, our, the ways of thinking. So we have to be unpredictable to the weed is, is really what we want to be. I really like that water analogy. And often when we talk about resistance, we're referring to resistance to herbicides. But as Tim just alluded to, resistance can build against any predictable management tactic, including cultural practices. Absolutely. There's examples in scientific literature out there of, say, if I always come back with tillage on the 15th of May and I have a certain weed and I wipe that weed out at that point of time, there's documented evidence that shows, well, that weed just pushes, it expands its germination period. And all of a sudden you said, oh, I controlled them all by the 15th of May with tillage, but then they've sort of shifted. They've moved around us and they're starting to come out later after the 15th of May. So it's not just an evolution of now this plant can take that chemical and metabolize it or do something with it or is no longer susceptible to it. Weed shift their periods of emergence. They do all kinds of things. There's examples of resistance to mechanically removing by hand rice and having wild rice in the field. And basically, people looked for it and picked it out for years and years and years. Well, slowly but surely, you selected for those individuals that were not as easy to detect and looked more like our cultivated rice. And I think that's like a thousand-year-old example. So as we're thinking about this integrated approach to weed management and pulses, I asked him about the weeds that are causing the most problems in his area. I guess there's a few. In Montana, we have herbicide-resistant kochia, which is a pretty troublesome in pulses because we don't have a lot of broadleaf herbicides that we can apply in crop. And so 
when it comes to harvest, a lot of times there's still some green kochia that's out there in the field that, you know, when you're cutting it down, it gets all in the swather and the combine and, and just can be a, a real pain. The other one I can think of right off the top of my head fairly easily is wild oat. So wild oat has become resistant to a lot of our grassy herbicides in Montana. So those group one herbicides. And so once you have that and you have this group one resistance, you don't have a lot of in-crop herbicides again that you can use for these spring emerging wild oat plants. So it becomes a little bit more difficult to manage that wild oat and kochia especially. I think those are the two biggest. Russian thistles also out there and then I think prickly lettuce is getting harder to control in some instances too. As if kochia and wild oat and Russian thistle and prickly lettuce weren't enough, Tim adds another couple of weeds that are also problems, mare's tail and narrowleaf hawksbeard. So mare's tail, we have a problem with it in Montana that it is resistant to glyphosate in sort of northeastern Montana where we grow a lot of our pulse crops. And so mare's tail can be a tricky one to manage. It really takes a fall application and then probably a follow-up spring application. You know, for the fall applications, things like Valor and glyphosate tank mixed is pretty common with good control or Sharpen and glyphosate tank mixed. It worries me a little bit that we put a lot of emphasis on these group 14 herbicides in this to really control that herbicide resistant glyphosate because further to our east and the Midwest, they really do, they have resistance to group 14 herbicides. So I think keeping that in mind is important. Keep that in the back of your head and always think of different ways to kind of control that mare's tail. I think that's, yeah, really important. It's probably going to be a bit more problematic as it goes into the future. And then to go along with that one in our northeastern part of Montana, sort of the, the west end of the Mondak region, I would say narrowleaf hawksbeard can be pretty problematic. And so if you have a narrowleaf hawksbeard problem, it's really good to try to get that cleaned up as best you can before you come back with uh, pulse crop following that. Now, the process of developing an integrated weed management approach that's right for you is going to be unique for every individual farm. But Tim provides some overall guidelines that you might want to consider. I don't know if there's such a defined process. I think it's a really on-farm experimentation process and figuring out what's right for the producer and when you might have those time periods. And really, I think it's important to sit down and say, do I have a diverse rotation? What is my general rotation plan for the next five years? How do pulses fit into that rotation? And then how do I design a herbicide program for those? And then how do I incorporate a few more things in there? Spring versus fall planted. We did a five-year project that's just coming out in academic literature where we had three farming systems. We had a standard chemical no-till farming system. We had a grazed organic farming system, and we had a tilled organic farming system. And we really looked at the weed community dynamics, and we had diverse rotation. We had safflower, we had yellow sweet clover, we had lentils, and we had wheat in there too. And really what we saw is you can kind of push these weed communities around a little bit depending on what the pressure is and how we apply it. To have the idea that we're going to get rid of weeds is, 
is a bit optimistic. And really what we should think about doing is pushing weed communities in directions where we want them to be so they have the minimum impact on our crops. So it's a strategy tactic thing more than a prescriptive plan that someone could give. And I think it comes with experience and and figuring out what's right for your farm and the timing and all those sorts of things. This concept of pushing weed communities around, I think, is a worthwhile topic to go a little bit deeper on. I asked him if he'd explain what this looks like in practice. I think I can come back to that sort of winter versus spring annual. We saw big differences in the weeds that you had in your field based on whether that crop that year was a spring planted crop or it was a fall planted crop. So if you planted winter wheat, we ended up with lots of cheatgrass. We ended up with a lot of winter annuals in there that were pretty difficult to control in some instances. But when you came back and, you know, the next year, maybe you wanted to reduce that seed bank. Well, you had those winter annuals in the field. Maybe if you were an organic producer and you didn't want to put a bunch of tillage in in the fall and you had those in the field, well, if you come back with some harrowing or wide sweeps or, or something to kill those weeds in the spring, then you really reduce that winter annual pressure that year and they didn't go back into the seed bank. So then you add, you had more of a summer spring annual dominated weed community in there. And so then if you came back and you followed it with the winter crop next year, that winter annual pressure wouldn't be as high as it was. So I've heard some people talking about, you know, we're thinking about managing our winter annuals better. Someone was mentioned this in North Dakota not too long ago. And I think it's really important to think about, okay, what's my windows of control? And then how does that change that weed community from year to year? And so I think you can sometimes push it down. So when I talk about weed, integrated weed management for pulses, we have to think about planning it years in advance because I usually think about, okay, what are my broadleaf weed problems and how do I really reduce those weed problems? And it may not be just in the field. It may be, oh, I have this pasture area that's next to it and it's full of kochia. Well, if I want to come back and plant a pulse in a couple of years, I should probably get that kochia problem under control in that a certain area. So I think that's what I think. Increasing seeding rates, I think, can sometimes be beneficial depending on the crop. I've seen some recent data out of Montana now that that has shown that maybe our lentil seeding rates should go up a little bit and we can get a little bit better weed control and a little bit less yield loss in some of the situations. Those are kind of the important ones I can think of right now. This type of long-term thinking to manage these weed communities over time allows us to be more proactive. It also takes more effort and more planning up front. But Tim believes the long view will pay off over time. It's easy to get caught up in a short year here and there, but I think it's important that we take the long view and we think about managing the weeds in the field in terms of, okay, what is in that seed bank in there? What weeds are in there? And, you know, if I put in an extra three, four dollars per acre, this year, can I make sure I reduce the chances of resistant kochia in three, four, five years, which would pay off much bigger dividends? Because if you pay in year one, two, three, four, five, maybe two, three, four dollars more an acre, 
that's going to end up being cheaper than getting a really painful resistance problem or a really bad weed problem where you go from paying $15 to $30 an acre. You know, I think that that's really important to think of that we don't just think of, oh, this year I'm paying $15, you know, I could pay way more, but really thinking about it over a longer period of time. One of those longer term strategies for some might be cover crops to help with weed suppression. But Tim says the trade-offs with soil moisture have to be considered. We do see that cover crops can make a difference, but it's always the trade-off that we face in the northern Great Plains of soil moisture. We did a study at Haver. Uh, it was a longer year study that, that Darren Boss and the folks at the Northern Ag Research Center from the Montana Ag Experiment Station set up. And they had a cover crop cereal rotation in there. And we looked at, you know, how much weeds were in there across the different cover crops and then how it affected soil moisture and soil temperature. Our cover crop mixtures were, they were vetch, oat, uh, sort of mustard mixes. We had just oat mixes, things like that. And they all produced a similar amount of biomass, I would say. We induced these warmer and drier conditions where we put a little chamber over around it so it heated it up a few degrees and then blocked some of the moisture. And it was interesting to see the shifts in the relative abundance of the cover crop mixes. So when it got warmer and drier, oats went down, but the mustards picked up in biomass in, in those cover crop mixtures. And you can definitely reduce the amount of weed biomass and even the number of individual weeds when you have a cover crop in there. There is a trade-off, though, that those cover crops still do tend to use a fair amount of soil moisture. And then subsequent years, you can get a sort of yield drag going on in there. So there is certainly a benefit to it. I think more and more research is showing now that, you know, even just a monoculture or, or a single cover crop species can do a great job of suppressing weed biomass in a field. But it's always figuring out that optimization of not losing too much soil moisture and getting the benefits that you want out of that cover crop in there. But forage crops, like trying to get some economic return by taking, for example, like a triticale mixture out there and then using it as a forage can provide some economic return. And Tim practices what he preaches when it comes to thinking about how to be more proactive in managing weeds. I asked what he's thinking about when it comes to the future of weed management. I'm a tactical person. So I'm a person who's thinking, you know, how do I do this? How do I figure this out with the technology I have or incorporating some new technologies out there? So a lot of my time I spend thinking, how do we improve the efficiency of the tools that we have and employ those tools in a way that doesn't cost more money, and we get a better economic return out of it. You know, I try to think of like, how are we going to manage kochia better? And how do we bring future weed control technologies into our kochia management? Because it's, it's really important, I think, to figure out tools that are going to be beyond just using herbicides. And so I think about that. And then I also think a lot about prevention. So in Montana, we've had one instance of water hemp, the weed, recorded in the state. And we have not recorded Palmer amaranth yet in the state, but, it, you know, it's been found in central North Dakota. So 
I also think a lot about how do we prevent new and future weed problems from spreading in the state. You know, if we end up with water hemp in fair number of our crop fields, that's going to be really difficult to manage pulses in, in that context. And so really thinking about that prevention and improved integrated weed management tactics of how we just, we need to always be very fluid and flexible in how we manage our weeds because we don't want to push selection in one really strong direction. We want to be very unpredictable to the weed. So I always try to figure out how to be unpredictable to a weed. Well, you heard him mention Palmer amaranth there as a weed that's showing up in North Dakota, but has not yet made its way to Montana. I asked Tim what can be done to try to prevent Palmer from spreading into his state. For keeping Palmer amaranth out, I think it's really important is, and it's lessons we borrow from invasive species, rangeland species, it's this early detection, rapid response. And so we need to know how to identify the weeds. We need to be out there scouting our fields. And then when we do find instances of the weeds, we need to develop very tactical focus management plans that focus it around that area and basically try to extirpate it or get rid of it from that focused area. And so I, that's what I think about when I think of prevention. But it's also thinking about the vectors of where these weed seeds come from too. Uh, that's a lot of what I think about too when I discuss prevention is, you know, you have to think you can do a really great job of managing your field and keeping it clean. But when the Chinook winds come blowing through and they're dispersing seeds at certain times of year, they may be blowing weed seeds from adjacent fields, from pastures, from disturbed sites, and putting those seeds back into your fields. And you could get a better outcome if you really say, okay, I need to manage the weeds that are, you know, that kochia that's over here or that cheatgrass that's over here to keep it from landing in my field and then costing me more money in a herbicide management program. Now, to close out today's episode, I asked Tim what's coming next for the field of integrated weed management. I started my professional training in really invasive weeds and modeling their population dynamics. And a lot of what I think about that we don't necessarily incorporate yet into agriculture, but maybe is coming in the future, and that's thinking of our sources and our sink population. So what are the sources of our weeds? Where are they? How do I reduce their numbers and then manage to keep those fields clean? And so when I say it's coming in the future, I think there's some precision ag technologies that we're going to use in the future to better map the weeds in our fields, to do more prescriptive management within our fields. So we'll know where certain distributions of weeds are within our fields because they're not always the same and we can do a better job in managing them in those ways. And then really thinking about driving that weed seed bank in your field, especially of the most problematic weeds down. And that's a long-term process that's not just um, from application to application, but really saying my goal is to drive that weed seed bank down. What tactics and what rotations and what methods do I really bring in to do that? What a fascinating episode there on integrated weed management. Thank you so much to Dr. Tim Seipel for taking the time to share all of those strategies and tactics and tips for managing weeds. I really enjoyed that episode and I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your podcast platform of choice. 
That way, you won't miss our next episode. Here's a sneak peek. For example, in Turkey, there's a huge snack food industry called leblebe. And this is the use of chickpeas roasted as a snack. You can't go into a restaurant and, and have a, a beer and sit down at a, a table without somebody putting a little dish of leblebe in front of you. Now, why is this important for the U.S. growers? Our chickpeas, our U.S. chickpeas are greatly preferred in Turkey. Why? Because they roast better than the chickpeas of other origins. They don't crack under the tremendous temperature characteristics that they have to go through. Again, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that upcoming episode. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, as well as the North Central IPM Center and USDA NIFA. We're releasing these episodes every other week throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that this information is relevant to you. Please tweet us with any feedback or suggestions by using the hashtag GrowingPulseCrops, and we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.